You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Property Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. 32-year-old Sam Merrill lives in Richland, Washington with his wife, two kids, and a lot of pain. I wake up every morning feeling like I'm dying. Sam has a neck issue that creates terrible headaches. It feels like it's pulling at my face. My eyeball hurts. My temple hurts. He has shoulder pain and back pain. It starts feeling like a toothache. It's like the squeezing of the nerve. When he was younger, Sam tried to live with the pain. In college, he'd have a day, maybe two, where he felt a bit better. He'd cram all his assignments into those short windows of time. But as he got older, the pain-free stretches got shorter and shorter. Everything caused him pain, even bending over to pick up something he had dropped. In 2014, his doctors put him on opioid painkillers. I was like, oh my gosh, I can do all this stuff now. I could go to the store, I could pick up my son. When we talked to Sam in June, he was taking opioid painkillers several times a day basically whenever he needed to be fully present. This included going to a birthday party with his kid or mowing the lawn, even talking to us. I took an oxycodone pill when I woke up this morning, so I would be alert for the interview, and then a um, Valium, and uh, so I'm not, I am not feeling pain right now. He has to be careful, though, to ration out his pills. He learned that the hard way when he first started taking opioids. At first, I'm like, oh, I go through the pills. It takes about a month or so for a beginning. But then, like, the pain starts getting worse really fast. And so I start calling before the end of the month thinking it's just like a regular refill, right? It was not like a regular refill. After Sam had refilled early twice, he got a call from a nurse. She told him he would have to make his pills last the entire month. I'm just pacing around my house, just kind of like counting down to when I could take my next oxycodone. Sam's tolerance to the drugs was building up, so he needed even more to keep his pain in check. His doctor increased his dose for a while. Then he started seeing a pain specialist who bumped it up even more. But these high doses, they take away more than just pain. When my daughter was born last year, um, like it's, those muzzy memories are very fuzzy. Sometimes it's kind of hard to remember, like clearly the day before or a couple of hours before. Like my, it, your brain is just kind of distracted. 
But for Sam, a fuzzy life on opioids is still a life. I understand the dangers of opioids very clearly. But not having the pill at all, I would not be able to be productive, not be able to be a member of my family, enjoy a record or play a video game or watch a TV show. Like, that's total helplessness. This is The Impact, a show about how policy affects real people from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Last week, we went back in time. We looked at a policy for pain treatment from the 1990s. This policy turned pain into a vital sign, and that led doctors to prescribe way more opioids to their pain patients. On today's episode, we are looking at a possible future of pain treatment, something called pain acceptance. It is gaining a lot of traction with American doctors right now. Pain acceptance is kind of just what it sounds like. It is asking patients to live with their pain for months, for years, even for the rest of their lives. We will hear from a chronic pain patient named Kristen. She has embraced pain acceptance. She's actually trying to wean herself off opioids right now. We'll hear more from Sam. He is really skeptical that he can just live with this crippling pain. But first, we'll hear from a doctor who has promoted pain acceptance and believes it is the path forward. I am Jane Ballantyne. Dr. Ballantyne is the president of a group called Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing, or PROP. She is also a professor at the University of Washington, and she regularly sees pain patients at a clinic in Seattle. Her medical career started in the 1970s, so she has watched this giant shift in pain medicine firsthand. I suppose the seeds of all of this happened during the end of the 1990s. We went into this in detail in our last episode, so definitely go back and listen to that one if you haven't already. But the upshot is this. In the 1990s, hospitals and academic journals, they told doctors they have to take pain way more seriously. They started calling pain a vital sign, something as important as blood pressure or temperature. And they told doctors to measure it at every single visit. What came out of all of that is the zero to 10 pain scale. So you say to someone, what do you think your pain level is, where zero is no pain and 10 is the worst pain you've ever had? You've probably seen one of these scales on the wall of your doctor office. It's that row of 10 faces. There's someone at zero who is smiling and doing great, someone at six with a bit of a frown, and someone at 10 who is just sobbing in pain. So people began to talk about having 9 out of 10 pain instead of talking about having a lot of pain. Doctors were measuring pain. They were talking to their patients about pain all the time. So it would be weird if they weren't trying to treat it, trying to bring that 9 or that 6 down to a 0. That was where opioids came in. We were taught, and I, I must say I taught too, because I'd been convinced initially by the whole thing, that opiates should be used for chronic pain and that they were safe and effective for chronic pain. But by the early 2000s, 
Dr. Ballantyne was worried the drugs weren't safe or effective. She started to see these behaviors in patients that she now recognizes as big red flags. They keep coming back for early refills. The, the medication doesn't last as long as it should last. They ask to increase their dosages because the pain is getting worse. They get frustrated with their doctors. Those are all signs that it's just the treatment's not going well or that they've reached a point where the tolerance cannot be overcome other than giving a toxic dose. Toxic, as in patients on really high doses can stop breathing. They can die. Particularly if they're taking drugs like Valium, which are quite often prescribed together with opiates. It's not just the big doses that are dangerous. It is the small ones, too. Dr. Ballantyne says that regularly taking opioids, it can change your brain chemistry. There is usually this wave of pleasurable, happy chemicals when you do something fun. But opioids flood your brain with an artificial version of that chemical. And some research shows that your brain just stops making it. So you don't get a nice, good-feeling kick when you listen to an excellent policy podcast or go on a long run. In other words, that people who are on opiates for a long time, they feel like zombies. As she watched these problems from opioids grow and spread, Dr. Ballantyne started questioning a basic assumption in pain treatment. For decades, doctors were trying to get their patients to zero pain. That's why they were prescribing opioids. Dr. Ballantyne, she started wondering, what if we stopped aiming for zero? There are approaches that involve not becoming too focused on the pain, thinking of living with the pain rather than thinking that, that you can't live with the pain. In 2015, Dr. Ballantyne wrote this pretty controversial article for the New England Journal of Medicine. She argued that, yeah, of course doctors should work to reduce pain, but that they shouldn't get hung up on eliminating it completely. Instead, they should help patients live full lives with low levels of pain, help them accept life at a two or three on the pain scale, help them accept that zero pain might not be realistic. You accept that as you get older, it may be painful to stand up. Pain is part of the human condition. We can't abolish pain completely either in, in human beings in general or in individuals. It's an impossible goal. In the paper, Dr. Ballantyne does say some patients should keep getting opioids, but they are the exception, not the rule. Whereas recently we've said they're the rule and not the exception. For everyone else, she has a whole range of options, water aerobics or movement, if that is possible mental exercises or meditation to help with pain acceptance. Her article got a lot of pushback in the comments section. How New England Journal of Medicine even recognizes these people as doctors and not quacks is beyond me. Only an idiot might conclude that one can dismiss the effects of living with a healthcare problem that reminds you of its presence with every move you make. Some commenters went way further, 
they wrote into Dr. Ballantyne's boss, the dean of the medical school at the University of Washington. They demanded that she be fired. The pushback was really unexpected and a bit upsetting because it was so personally aggressive and showed such lack of understanding of what we were actually saying. It was interpreted as cruel and you're unsympathetic and you don't understand what people are going through. And it was quite vile. But not everyone has reacted to pain acceptance this way. Some patients are more enthusiastic about it. After the break, we will introduce you to someone who thinks pain acceptance is working really, really well for her. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, before we get back to the show, I wanted to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts, The Uncertain Hour, produced by Marketplace. The first season came out last year. It focused on welfare and it was just so good. I ended up binge listening it in like one day. The host, Chrissy Clark, she did these deep dives into thorny questions And she brought those questions to life with amazing characters, surprising stories, and even a 90s synth-pop album of welfare songs. Yes, she really did find a CD of welfare-to-work songs. I am so excited that she is back with a second season. This time, Chrissy is looking at regulations, where they come from, how they shaped our democracy, and why they matter now. I love the first episode. It actually gets you incredibly invested in the story behind peanut butter regulation. I swear it is possible. Just take a listen. If you like the impact, I know you will enjoy the uncertain hour. So when you're done listening to this episode, you should go look them up on your favorite podcast app, listen, subscribe, and tell them that we sent you. Welcome back to The Impact. Before the break, we talked about the new concept of pain acceptance, just living with pain. It sounds okay in theory, but we wanted to find someone who is actually trying to put it into practice, someone with a history of chronic pain. So I was 19, so almost 20 years ago. This is Kristen Geiger. And I started experiencing some pretty severe back pain, and then it sort of spread throughout a lot of my body, and it was... Scary. It was honestly just terrifying. It wasn't just back pain. Kristen had, she still has this deep bone level ache. She's also super, super sensitive to anything touching her skin. And then I get sort of like dabbing, bee sting sort of pains, like lightning real quick, kaboom, all over my body. Those are bad, especially like... (laughs) Especially if I'm at work and I'm trying to be in a meeting, um, those can get really awkward. They can catch you by surprise and like I'll let out little shrieks. Back in the 1990s, 
doctors diagnosed Kristen with a pretty rare disease called syringomyelia. They told her that she would probably have this chronic pain the rest of her life. She ended up dropping out of college. Kristen was pretty depressed at the time. You know, I don't think that it would be overly dramatic to say that I was, you know, positively suicidal. I mean, it was an awful, awful period. Shortly afterwards, her doctors started prescribing opioid painkillers. Those helped her manage the pain. They let her build a good life in Columbus, Ohio, where she works in a dentistry clinic. She has all these hobbies like weaving. I got to join the Central Ohio Weavers Guild. And so it's basically like me and 50, 75-year-old women. And it's just fantastic. It's just great. Kristen says that she has functioned really well on the opioids. But a few years ago, she began to get uncomfortable with the idea she would just be on them forever. There were a couple of things going on. Part of it was just that Kristen was embarrassed. Ohio, where she lives, is one of the epicenters of the opioid epidemic. It's on the news all the time, and Kristen feels awkward going into a pharmacy and filling a prescription. Like, you know, somebody who's standing in line behind me overhears, and I'm quite sure that they think I'm a heroin addict, because that's sort of the association. The embarrassment even creeps into her personal life. I got divorced and I started dating again. And I did feel like that was like a conversation I didn't particularly want to have. And I was worried about how the whole thing would go over if I started dating somebody that I liked. The opioid epidemic also led to changing laws in Ohio that made it a lot harder for doctors to prescribe opioids if they weren't a pain specialist. Kristen had been seeing the same doctor for a decade. She really trusted him. After the law passed, he didn't want to prescribe opioids anymore. She had to find another doctor and figure out if she could trust him too. If you're in a situation where you are being prescribed regular narcotics, you are really giving that doctor an awful lot of control over your life because they can decide if you're going to go into withdrawal or they could decide the amount of medication that they're going to give you and, and whether or not, you know, I don't know. They just have a lot of power. Kristen wasn't sure she wanted another doctor to have that kind of power over her. And I just sort of decided that maybe this would be a good opportunity for me to see, you know, to what extent I still need this medication. Last year, Kristen decided to do something radical, to wean herself off her opioid prescription. She knew that she might feel more pain, more of those bee stings, more of those bone-level aches. Her doctor was not pressuring her to make this change. She just really wanted to try. It's been a long process. When Kristen started, she was taking 10 white opioid pills every day. I just started going down by you know, one pill, and I went pretty darn slowly. And the first several times I did that, it really wasn't too bad. The last couple of times when I went from 
four pills down to three pills. And when I went from three pills down to two pills, I got pretty sick both times. A lot of terrible chills. I couldn't stop sort of shaking, which was kind of scary. But ultimately, nothing that I couldn't handle. Kristen has gone down from 10 pills a day to just two. As she suspected, the pain is still there. But she meditates now and does yoga. She says that helps her accept the pain and feel less helpless. So it's been a a really good experience. When I started reporting this story, it was like a lot of other stories I report. I called people up, we did interviews. They would tell me really personal things about their own lives. But this story actually became about my own life. Because I've had chronic pain on and off for the past decade or so, and it has just started flaring up again. I am really struggling to deal with that. Back when I was a teenager, I started having all these weird issues with my left foot. I actually broke my foot more times than I can even count. The details are a little fuzzy to me because I was so young. So I called up an expert who can provide much better background. Can you just tell us your name and kind of who who you are as is um, important to this interview? (laughs) Um, My name is Tina Cliff and I am your Sarah Cliff's mother. (laughs) My mom walked me through a really detailed history of my foot issues. Well, you had one incident in high school. I think it was your junior year. Right before my senior year of high school, I had this surgery that left me on crutches for weeks. For years after, I was in and out of these tall plastic walking boots. It became a joke among my college roommates how often I was wearing them. And there was one particularly memorable trip that my mom and I took to Paris when I was 21 and wearing not one boot, but two of them. When I remember we would like joke about, it's like the fashion capital of the world. And I'm like, my like walk was really weird too. Right, because when you wear one boot, like one foot is sort of like carrying along the other. When you're wearing two boots, it is very Frankenstein-ish. It was really awkward and pretty painful. But after college, the problem just seemed to disappear. I stopped getting fractures. It meant that I could do all these new things. I took up running, and it turns out I love running. I ran half marathons. I even ran a full marathon. Then two summers ago, the foot pain came back, and it hasn't really gone away. I've spent about eight months or so of the past two years in plastic walking boots. I've done two rounds of physical therapy. I've had multiple cortisone injections. I still have pain. I can accept that pain. What is a lot harder is seeing all these people my age do things I can't do, like go for a run or go for a long hike. Those things used to bring me so much joy and I can't do them anymore. It's really changed the way I ask questions about pain acceptance. Is it, have you struggled at all with the idea of pain acceptance? Because I find, again, this is just my personal experience, but it just sucks seeing other people do things that I can't. Oh my gosh, absolutely. You know, it totally sucks. I mean, I definitely do my fair share of wallowing and, and feeling sorry for myself, without a doubt. It's hard for us as humans, I think, in general to to understand that life isn't 
fair. Yeah. <laughs> In my experience, doctors actually make pain acceptance way harder. I have had multiple physicians tell me that this new treatment is going to be the one that fixes my problem. Except it doesn't. But it does leave me hoping. I like want to keep searching for like the perfect cure that might be out there, but it turns out. No, I, I totally hear you because I did that for, you know, five to seven years. It was like, surely there is going to be a neurosurgeon out there who has discovered this amazing surgery that will cure me. You know, <laughs> I did that for a long time. And I mean, some of that is reasonable, right? Like you do want to go find the best doctors that you can who can do the best treatment. Absolutely. But, you know, when it becomes a, a long-term thing, I don't know, there's only so much you can fight against. At the beginning of the show, Sam Merrill told us about his shoulder and his back pain. He knows there's no silver bullet that will heal him. He had a surgery this summer that helped a bit, but the pain is definitely still there. There's no cure for what I have. He talked about being on this constant loop of opioids, then surgery. It's not working great. That loop wears on you. It makes you depressed and you're stuck taking medications over and over again. But when I brought up the idea of pain acceptance... I'm sorry, it doesn't apply to me, to me personally. When I hear that, I hear people who have never experienced that kind of pain kind of telling you to man up, that what you're going through isn't um, as big of a deal as you think it is, that if you're just active, if you're just go to physical therapy, that it'll solve your problems. And I've done all of those things, and it doesn't solve my problems. Sam kept shifting our conversation. He wanted to talk about the possibility that maybe one day there might be something that does fix his problems, something that ends the opioids and surgery loop. If they ever invent a non-narcotic drug that's perfect, that doesn't have addiction problems, doesn't get you high, that would be a perfect pill. I would love that pill. I think that's the hardest thing for all of us, for Sam, Kristen, doctors, even me, to let go of. There is so much that modern medicine can do. We can map the entire genome. We can replace entire organs. But we cannot fix everyday pain. Because there is no perfect pill. There isn't a perfect pill on the horizon. Right now, we're stuck with our pain. And we're just going to have to accept that. The Impact is produced by Bird Pinkerton, and our senior producer is Jillian Weinberger. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. We had engineering and mixing help from Peter Leonard and Pedro Alvira. Our theme music is by Miles Ewell, and music in this episode also comes from Kevin McLeod, Poddington Bear, and Chris Zabriskie. We had voice acting from Julie Bogan and Joe Posner. Our social media is managed by Julie Bogan. The Impact was co-created by myself, Sarah Cliff, and Liz Sheltons. Next time on The Impact. This is Joan. This is our new friend, Joan. I make a new friend, and then I insert an IUD 
into her uterus. I can't get it in. What's up, Rachel? (laughs) Don't worry. She is just a robot. Nobody gets hurt in the taping of this episode. But we do learn a lot about a policy that is expanding birth control to so many American women. A policy that reduces teen births and reduces abortion, but a policy that is under serious threat. Join us next week to learn more. We'll see you then. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.